It seems like everyone collects something. Pez dispensers, ticket stubs, rare books, even thimbles. Good morning, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. People have all kinds of reasons for collecting stuff, says New York City psychologist Dr. Michael Marr. People will collect for the pleasure of it. More from Dr. Marr later in the show. We're getting inside the heads of collectors this morning on Cityscape, right here on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Our first segment may very well quack you up. I recently visited the Manhattan apartment of a woman whose collection would probably make Sesame Street's Ernie green with envy. My name is Colleen Fletcher, and I'm from New York now, but I'm originally from Dallas, Texas. And you share your Manhattan apartment with all of these rubber ducks. All 500 of them. 500 rubber ducks. That's incredible. Yeah, um, I've been collecting now for about three years. Three years. That's actually a short amount of time, I would think, to collect 500 rubber ducks. Yeah. Uh, Well, a lot of friends send rubber ducks to me, too, so probably almost maybe half of my collection was given to me by friends and family whenever they go on trips or friends come over here and see me, then they, they always bring me a duck. How did this all start? With my bathroom, but not the one out here. I was living in Vegas, and I had a huge bathroom, and um, I was thinking about how I was going to decorate it, and then I just got this funny idea. I was just like, I'm just going to do it in rubber ducks, and it just kind of started out as a joke, and then um, once I got online and I saw all these different kinds of rubber ducks, then I just started ordering stuff, and then I had a collection, and then um, I found Duck Planet on, um, on the internet, and it's actually a website for um, people who collect rubber ducks and also a forum. So that got me like more into it too. And um, and that's how I met Charlotte Lee. She's the, uh, she holds the world's record for the most rubber ducks in a collection. And how many does she have? I believe she's got around 4,000 now. I would imagine you still have that first duck that you collected. I guess I do. Um, I kinda, You guess you do. Well, I would think that that duck has a very special place in your heart. I got a group of ducks, but I do have a favorite, um, and I'm looking at it right now. It's got this big toothy grin. It's real goofy looking, and, and I like that one. It was one of my first ones, actually, to get. It's cool, like, you know, it, the whole collection just reminds me you know, not to take life too seriously, and, and it always just gives me a chuckle, you know, during the day when I look and I see all these rubber ducks sitting around in my apartment. <laughs> you have 500. Have you ever said to yourself, okay, 500 is enough, or do you constantly feel the urge that you need more? Right now, like 500 is kind of my limit, but then I usually trade ones, you know, some of the older ones with other people, or, or I can sell them and then buy, you know, new ducks that come out but I'm trying to like not get more than 500 because I don't want the apartment to look like you know crazy but probably if I had you know a bigger space then I'd probably put a few more shelves with rubber ducks <laughs> you can never have too many I want a new duck one that won't try to bite one that won't chew a hole in my socks one that won't quack all night So this is radio, of course, so why don't you describe how your ducks are displayed here in the apartment? My apartment is around 400 square feet, so I have to be very creative in organizing them 
so that they don't look obnoxious in the apartment. So what I've done is I've got one large DVD case and it holds about 200 ducks and um, so that's on one wall. On the other side I've got a curio that's got rubber ducks in it also and then on top of that I've stacked another small DVD case that's got rubber ducks in it. And then across the way from that is another curio that's got rubber ducks in it. And then the ones that I can't display because um, because it would be overwhelming, I just have them in plastic bins, and I have some of them stacked up on that, and then some under the bed also. Do they feel neglected at all? I don't know. <laughs> I don't really think about that. <laughs> I don't know. Hey, help us. No, I'm just kidding. No, um, no. I just I put out the coolest ones and then the others hopefully one day when I get a bigger apartment I can display them. Now introduce us to some of these ducks. They are of all different types here. We have an Easter bunny duck. We have an Elvis duck. Wow what a collection. Actually I have a blog, a rubber duck blog and it's called Duck Show and I have like a cast of characters and that's a lot of these that you see here. Um, I have a karate duck that um, that I use as a personality. Um, I've got the toothy grin duck that I use as a personality. I have this duck right here. It's got graffiti all over it. Um, it's called Street Duck, and it has these stickers that I don't really stick around New York because you can get in trouble for that. But um, in other cities, I stick on places, and then I get a picture of the duck by the sticker, and um, he's causing a little mischief. So there's that guy, and then... Um, I love this then, one here with the blue hat. That's a great duck. He's very Vegas, that duck. <laughs> um, I got his picture in Circus Circus because he reminded me of, um, of that movie, uh, Leaving Las Vegas, the whole like Johnny Depp thing. Yeah, so he's a Vegas duck, and then um, I've got one here with a little computer for like internet stuff, and then um, I got a tennis duck... I don't know. Yeah, all kinds of different characters. Superhero ducks, um, a duck from Hooters Casino, um, Elvis duck. Some of them light up, too. The Elvis duck lights up when you put it in water. Um, the Darth Vader duck also lights up when you put it in water. Um, I have some that quack as well. Let's hear one okay. that quacks. You're supposed to put them in water. There you go. That's classic. And this one came from um, China, actually. I did a trade with someone from China. I traded her some ducks from here, and she um, she got this duck for me. Um, and some of the other ones come from other countries, too. I have one from Belgium. Some of them come from Germany. Um, some of them from the U.K. You can only get them in the U.K. Um, like this one here. Her name's Tardy Ann, and she's a... Uh, she's, a tartan duck. Now, did you name that duck? Actually, this one came with the name Tardy Ann, but I do have ducks that I've named. Um, I got one, one of the first ones that I got in Vegas when I was living in Vegas, came through the mail, and I named it Vegas Baby, because, you know, Vegas Baby. But yeah, some of them come with names, and then some of them I name on my own. Is there value in these ducks besides the sentimental value? Some are more expensive than others. These bigger, heavier ducks, they go from like $8 to $15. That's a Statue of Liberty duck. Right. Some of the, uh, these are pretty popular. They go for around 8 to 10 also. 
And there are religious ducks, I see. So I have got three Jewish ducks, <laughs> and I got those from Cost Plus World Market. I'm not Jewish, but they're so funny. I just I had to get them. Um, and there's also, like, Christmas ducks we've got here, and then there's, like, Easter ducks, Halloween ducks I've got around the corner. <laughs> there's ducks for all seasons, too, uh, Valentine's ducks, summer ducks. So it sounds like, though, most people get this about you. Your husband supports it. Your sister supports it. Yeah, I mean, people, when they meet me, and then they meet my personality, and then they're like, yeah, she's really goofy. You know, it doesn't surprise me, so... That's pretty much about it. Now, let me ask you this question, a pretty serious question. Donald or Daffy? <laughs> um, well, I like uh, Ernie's Rubber Duck. <laughs> I like that one best. Can you sing a little? Do you know that song? I would imagine oh, you no, do. No, no, no. I, I sing karaoke, but only after a few beers. Ah, no Rubber Ducky, <laughs> you're the one? No, <laughs> not for me, no. <laughs> Oh, rubber ducky, you're the one. You make bath time lots of fun. Colleen Fletcher collects rubber ducks. She's online at duckshow.com. New York City psychologist Dr. Michael Marr says the reasons behind people's collections are as diverse as the collections themselves. Dr. Marr joins us now on the phone. Doctor, thanks for taking the time. You're welcome, sure. What motivates people to collect things? It's an interesting question. There are different types of collecting that, you know, we we sometimes see. I, I work uh, at Columbia University um, in the uh, anxiety disorders program where we talk to a lot of people who collect as a form of obsessive compulsive disorder. And so in that type of collection, you see people give all sorts of reasons for why they collect. And one of them is that it, it gives them a sense of a thrill or it, it relieves an anxiety that they may need something in the future, and if they find it, you know, they feel like they should have it. In other cases, people will collect for the pleasure of it, to have a, a real collection of things like stamps or coins or, um, you know, just about anything one can think of. How much of collecting do you think is simply about the quest, the challenge of finding something that nobody else has? It's a great question. I, I think for serious collectors of um, things that can sometimes be rare, like certain types of stamps or, or cards or baseball cards even, that's absolutely, there's a sense of, uh, of, of exploration and conquest to, you know, get something other people don't have. I would think that for some people, collecting is just another way to be social because there are a lot of clubs out there. It's a way for them to get out. Maybe they're shy and this is their way to connect with people. That definitely could be the case. There, there are sort of multiple reasons that, that you know, that, that motivate people to collect. And that, that could definitely be, be one too, sort of sharing their collection with others. You talked about people with obsessive compulsive disorder, but how do you know the difference between someone who's a passionate collector and then someone who's a fixated eccentric? When a person has difficulty living their life because their, their place is so clogged with things, they have difficulty having people over. They're embarrassed by how you know their place looks as a result, or they're, um, they're really unable to get around to the point where it may be dangerous or a fire hazard. When people have that kind of impairment, even when it's a special kind of thing that they're collecting, we tend to think of that as, as being more of a, a, a problem 
than simply a, you know, an avid collection. Is there a treatment for someone who hoards? There is. There are different groups working on this issue. And as OCD has some pretty good treatments to date, and hoarding happens to be one of the more stubborn forms of OCD. In other words, it doesn't respond quite as well to either medication or to cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the first-line treatment for um, OCD. And medication can be very helpful, uh, the SRI medications like Prozac and Paxil, and cognitive behavioral therapy can also be helpful. Do we know, doctor, what Sigmund Freud thought of collecting? <laughs> he had a variety of ideas that largely haven't sort of squared with the current research on the problem. You know, the idea of suppressed emotions and drives. But uh, I, I'm, I'm not a Freud expert, so I, I sort of leave it at that. Dr. Marr, thanks so much for your time. All right. Dr. Michael Marr is a psychologist here in New York City. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. For a lot of collectors, money is no object. Kathy Elke is the director of special collections at Christie's Auction House. She's seen a lot of money exchange hands for some very odd items. We have sold everything from fabulous doorknobs from the Plaza Hotel to Spock's ears from Star Trek Bobby Short's piano. Uh, you know, we really sell the gamut because it's really more about the story and the person and who it came from than necessarily even the object sometimes. Do you recall what Spock's ears went for? Oh, thousands of dollars. We had several pairs. And, you know, they're kind of they're rubber, so they don't have the best shelf life, and yet they were obviously extremely popular in the context of doing this, the Star Trek auction. What do you think motivates someone to spend thousands of dollars on a pair of pointed ears? Well, you know, the thing with collectibles is it's, it's so emotionally driven. It's really about a very personal connection. You know, when we did the plaza sale, you know, and, and frankly, the things themselves didn't necessarily have huge intrinsic value, but everyone came in during the viewing with a story of the first time their grandmother took them for tea at the Palm Court or their parents courted, you know, in one of the restaurants there. And so it's a very personal connection. It's very emotionally driven. And when we have these sales, people tend to go psychotic when they bid. Doorknobs, I understand, are big business, antique doorknobs. You know, it's an area. I mean, there's definitely a market for it. I have to say the ones from the plaza were absolutely beautiful. They were little jewels. They were brass oval doorknobs with the double P insignia, and they were actually quite lovely. Um, but yeah, I think you could probably find any category and find a fanatic attached to it. <laughs> well, there's no question that Star Trek fans can be fanatics. They're called Trekkies. They are. Well, actually, they like to be called Trekkers. Trekkers. Did not um, know that. And unbelievable fan base. I mean, we actually traveled worldwide with highlights of the Star, Star Trek collection, um, starting in Folded, Germany. Went to Vegas, went to San Diego, obviously toured it here. I couldn't even name how many people or put a number to it. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people came through and saw it. It is probably one of the most loyal fan bases that are out there. Um, it's really incredible experience. Do they come to the auctions dressed as their favorite Star Trek characters? They do. Uh, not everybody. A lot of people were in sort of normal street clothes, but we had quite a handful of people that did come in costume. And um, what was fun for us is we took extra jumpsuits from um, the sale was handled 
was consigned through CBS Paramount Studios. So we got some of the original jumpsuits, and we put our staff in them as well during the sale. So all the phone bidders were in jumpsuits. The auctioneers were wearing things. It was hysterical. We actually had a couple of people that were just remarkable lookalikes. We met them several times. I think a lot of us have an image of the average trekker. Is that preconceived notion correct? Not really, because I have to say we met people in all shapes and sizes. I mean, there are a lot of people on the West Coast who just, you know, are sort of into the Internet, but sort of very hip and cool and just adore everything Star Trek. Um, We saw really all, what was great about it was very multi-generational. We saw sort of parents and their kids because since Star Trek was, you know, we did this as the 40th anniversary sale. So, you know, my generation grew up on the original show in the 60s and then they're bringing their kids who are growing up on the more recent movies. That was really fun. I mean, we didn't, we hadn't really thought of it in those terms and that was sort of an unexpected bonus. But, They really kind of came in all forms. You talked about the personal connection that people had with the plaza, but what do you think is the passion behind collectors of Star Trek paraphernalia? I think it was really such a visionary show at the time. I mean, in the 60s, it dealt with interracial issues or intergalactic issues. It really kind of covered the gamut of a lot of the social consciousness at the time. And so I think people really were impacted in an enormous way by this, because I think it was sort of a new way of thinking in terms of television. And then, again, the fact that it's had this longevity of, you know, up to last year with the newest release of just unbelievable production output, literally over four decades, just keeps bringing new people into the fold. Besides Spock's ears, what other items are most coveted? Well, I mean, our top lot in the sale was the Starship Enterprise D, and that sold for over half a million dollars, which, you know, given that it's really plastic, (laughs) is a phenomenal price. So do you think it's just a hobby for these people, or is it more than that? For some, it's more than a hobby. You know, some people bought to, like, actually recreate rooms in their homes based on one of the Star Trek stories. Um, I mean, look, we sold... A thousand lots. It was a three-day auction, and it was over seven million dollars. So you can't say this was just kind of a passing fancy. People really paid significant dollars for these things, and I think we're, you know, are, are, many of them were true collectors and really, you know, amass this kind of item on a regular basis. So Star Trek fans are truly willing to go boldly where no other has gone before. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to look at it. Kathy, thanks so much for your time. You're so welcome. Kathy Elke is the director of special collections at Christie's Auction House. What would you do for a slamming pair of kicks? Upper Manhattan resident Chris Vidal will go to great lengths for the best and newest pair of sneakers. The bedroom of his apartment looks more like the storeroom of a footlocker, with boxes of sneakers stacked up on metal wall racks. A lot of people call me like a sneakerhead, a, a collector, aficionado, a shoe celebrity, all kinds of stuff, you know? How did you start collecting sneakers? I think it goes back to like just growing up in Brooklyn, you know? It's not just about collecting, it's just like being, you know, the first one to have the hottest new shoes, the hottest kicks, and we never kept, we never planned on keeping them back then, you know? It was just more like, like, oh wow, yo, let's get these Jordans, or let's get these Air Forces, or let's get these Runners, or let's get this, or well, yo, they're doing a limited drop here, and... We just wore them, you know, like I skateboarded in a lot of the shoes that I had back in the days, you know, like I wish I would have kept them. I made thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars now. Do you remember the first pair that you bought? 
The first pair that I bought on my own was definitely a pair of Elise's. L-E-E-L-E-S-S-E. I don't even know if that brand is around anymore. I remember I went to uh, this spot on Fort Hamilton Parkway in Brooklyn. It was the first time I was buying my own kicks. You know, like grandma wasn't paying for them. My aunt wasn't paying for them. I didn't have nobody else. I had a paper route, and I went and bought a pair of Elise. And uh, it was like 1985, maybe. I had a paper route, and I was in a sixth grade going into junior high school. So it's probably like 84, word, because I'm 36 now. <laughs> so if you kept those, they would be worth a pretty penny. Uh, the Elise, probably not. It's not a shoe that, like, grew in value. Mostly, like, Air Jordans from, like, 85, 86, 87. Random Nikes, the first Air Max Ones, the Air Safari, stuff like that. You know, like, if you had a pair of the Air Pressures, like, I mean, I have a pair of 84 Vandals now, a couple pairs of 85 Jordan Ones. Those are worth a pretty penny. Explain to me what makes one sneaker more valuable than another. It's hard to say, but mostly the availability, the rarity of the shoe itself. Like, there's certain Jordan 1s from 1985 that were, like, regional releases that we didn't even know what regional releases. Like, they only came out in, let's say, Chicago, or they only came out in New York, or they only came out in the West Coast, you know? So, like, shoes like that, like a pair of Air Jordan 10s, the Chicago 10s, those shoes go for, like, thousands and thousands of dollars. I mean, I have these, which are, like, uh, these Air Jordan 4 undefeateds. They're worth fifty five, six thousand, 6000 brand new. You know, so it, it just depends. There was only like 72 pairs made of that shoe. You know, there's more than 72 people that live in my building here on, on 145th Street, you know? And these are shoes, though, that stay in the box. No, I wear those. Do you really? Yeah, yeah, I try to wear everything because they, if you just look at it as leather and rubber, then you don't worry about the value. Sometimes you regret putting on a pair of shoes. So how many pair of sneakers do you have in your collection now? Probably like 400-something. I kind of liquidated a lot of stuff, you know, because it's not about quantity anymore. It's more about quality, you know. So I'd rather have, like, 40 pairs of, of shoes that are worth, like, a couple thousand each opposed to 400 pairs that anybody else could have, you know. I'd rather have the stuff that people can't get, you know, that diamond, that creme de la creme, you know, the stuff that, that people can't find, the stuff that people don't even know about. Like, I got a PlayStation Air Force Ones, PlayStation Air Max 9360s. Undefeated Adidas, A-Life Pumps, ARC Sacconis, all kinds of stuff, you know, that's only limited, that only comes out in certain places. So it's not about having 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 pairs anymore, you know, because that was like records, and that would have records worth nothing, you know? Is it pretty competitive? I would imagine it is. Yeah, there's a lot of guys out there that are collectors, you know, like they do it so that people know that they have like these big collections, you know, like I do it because it's what I love. It's what I'm passionate about, man. When I put on a pair of shoes from 1984, it takes me back to that time when I couldn't get those shoes at 11 years old, you know, when I couldn't get a pair of Jordan ones because it was 60 something dollars and my grandmother was already, you know, like, like, like I can't get you another pair. I already got you a pair this, this year for, for school, you know, like now I got like 15 pairs of Air Jordan ones, all random ones, you know, like. It's not like that anymore. Do you find yourself having to explain yourself to people? All the time, George, like, people think they're still just tennis shoes, you know, like, and they're not tennis shoes, you know, like, I don't play tennis. And it's not about tennis. It's about, like, conceptual shoes. And, and I like to say that sneakers could bring a, a guy like you and a guy like me, who, let's say, we're 10 years apart, into the same place because we both have a, a vivid memory of that one sneaker. 
So that sneaker in 1994 meant something to me at 22, 21 that it did to certain people at like 15. They're not just sneakers, you know, like they're extensions of who we are. You know, to certain people, they're like palettes because they design on them. They do all different things. They customize shoes, you know. To other people, they're keepsakes, they're mementos. Closet space is at a premium here in New York City. Where do you keep all of these shoes? Anywhere and everywhere I can. I used to have a trick where I'd pull the couch away from the wall so that I could stick the boxes behind it, and people wouldn't know how many shoes were back there. I got stuff on the top of the closet. I got, like, these wire racks in my room on top of the chest or the dress or the wardrobe, you call it, you know, um, behind the television, just anywhere I could find space, you know, and and usually I have to hide them because on the way in, like, my girlfriend's like, oh, what is that? And I'm like, oh, nothing. She's like, it's not another pair of sneakers, is it? And I'm like, no. It's typically the boyfriend that's arguing with the girlfriend over the shoes. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of like uh, the tables have been turned. Storage. <laughs> yeah, she, she, she says that the house was like a storage until we got space to put the stuff. It's just like, you know how we are. We're dudes, man. You know, we got our gadgets. We got our toys. We got the things that we love and we want to do, man. Mine just happens to be sneakers, man. Takes me to that place, you know, like every guy needs it. Do you have them categorized or are they pretty much all over the place? Nah, they're just like, like I got some in, in the entertainment center, in, in the wall unit. So like here I have mostly like like shoes I wear every, every like I got a pair of uh, these neutral gray metallic Jordan ones from 2001, you know. So like I haven't worn those yet. Those are still dead stock, which means that they've never been worn. They're kept on ice, you know. It's just like certain things that we say, you know, like and then the closet... I have a, a bunch of random, like, like more Jordan 1s. Those are the 2001 red and blacks. And then I have the 85 Jordan 1s. And then I have 2008 and 2009. And uh, here I have, like, these Addy Color Adidas. They did this project with a bunch of stores. This particular pair happens to be, like, the Huff, which owns three stores. He's a, a dude that grew up in New York, skateboarder. Grew up with me. He's one of my closest friends back in the day. Still talk to him now. And... He did a project with Adidas, and uh, it's called the Addy Color Low One, and it's an awesome shoe. It represents, like, this dude, Barry McGee, Twist, who is a, a graffiti artist out of California, and uh, this dude who is his uh, bail bondsman called Ray Fong. So they put his face on the shoe, as you can see. And then, like, in my room, like, I, I keep mostly the shoes here that, that, I, that I get new, you know, and, 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 and I wear, and then, like, the ones that I want to save, like, like, I got pairs here that... Like, these are these dunks they did that, that they did for the Lance Armstrong um, Livestrong Foundation for his, like, third return back. So they took, like, all these iconic shoes, and all the, all the proceeds and profits went to the Lance Armstrong. So, like, people look at them, and they say they're just sneakers. They're not just sneakers anymore. This is, like, something that was done as a concept to raise money for a foundation. Do you sell your shoes, or do you hold on to them? I, I've been known to be one of the biggest resellers in New York. <laughs> um, I made a lot of money with sneakers. And uh, I'm going to continue doing my thing. You know, I love them. You know, like it's just, it's called CSD for us. You know, it's compulsive sneaker disorder. You know, like people are OCD, people are ADD, ADHD, they're this, they're that. We got CSD, man. It's compulsive sneaker disorder. But it's also big business. As you're saying, you make money on this. Yeah, I mean, as you can see, some of the price tags on some of these shoes are, are well above five, $600. I must say, I've never seen a price tag on a shoe that's $615. <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> I mean, look at this one. It says four fifty. This one's four twenty-five. The other one's six hundred. Look, six twenty-five. These are, these are like, these are like my, my favorite shoes of all time. This is the Air Jordan Four Retro from nineteen ninety-nine. 
And I say the 1999 version because it's the last one that had Nike Air on the back. And I couldn't get the 1989 because my grandmother couldn't buy it for me back in 1989. But I have both colors still with hang tags. Each of these shoes would easily sell for like five, $600, but I wouldn't part with them for anything. I won't wear them for anything either because I had at one time seven pairs of just the black and then three pairs of the white. And I just kept it wearing them and wearing them. And I got down to these last pairs and I said, you know what? These are just my, my, my holy grails. You know, these are like the ones that, that when I get space or, or, or when something happens, we'll be able to display them in the house the way they deserve. You know, like, I don't know if my girlfriend's going to dig it, but, you know, I'm really big on it. What's the craziest thing you've ever done to get a pair of sneakers? Me and my boy Siege, my boy Felix, we drove 12 and a half hours to Chicago to uh, Nike Town to go wait online. And it was a snowstorm, nor'easters, back to back. And we're driving out there. We rented a car. Well, well, we stole. Well, we rented a car for one day and didn't bring it back for like four days. We got charged with like theft of a vehicle, which was kind of crazy. We drove 12 and a half hours. I waited online from 3.30, 4 in the morning till 6 o'clock at night. I was number 84. I hustled my way all the way up to number 5 on the line. Got into a fight, almost got arrested. Had uh, Chicago police watching the line because they said those New York dudes are making too much noise. But, yeah, I tell you, I'm passionate, man. If somebody's going to try to skip me, I'm not going to let it happen. If they let it happen, then I'm just going to keep doing it. If your grandson or, or your son is like, yo, I want that $200 pair of shoes... You know, it's better that he wants a $200 pair of shoes than something else because the shoes are going to keep him moving. It's turning kids into businessmen because they're reselling. And, like, don't wonder who we are, man. We're just sneakerheads. We're just collectors. We're just guys who, like, got toys. And these just happen to be sneakers. Chris, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, George. Have a good one. Chris Vidal is a Brooklyn native. He and his giant sneaker collection now live in Upper Manhattan. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Skylar Srivastava. I'm George Bodak. Have a great weekend.